Episode 5, Part 1 and 2 of the first series of Make Room Podcast. In this episode, we'll be delving into the subject of allyship, the truth versus the false. I've invited two friends and colleagues to help me break down this topic and share their observations and involvement. In Part 1, I'll be joined by guest host Alexandra Naranjo. Alex is a private voice teacher and is currently studying for her Bachelor's in Fine Arts in Musical Theatre. Originally born in Caracas, Venezuela, Alex spent most of her upbringing in one of the most conservative states in the United States of America. She opens up in this episode and shares her experiences growing up as a minority in a harsh environment, and her most recent experiences as an ally in the Black Lives Matter movement. Alex is a passionate advocate for racial and cultural inclusion with a focus for creating a more sustainable environment in theatre. Alex has goals of moving to the UK to build her career as a practitioner in theatre. You're tuned in to Make Room Podcast. So we're going to be talking about true allyship and false allyship. This might be quite a controversial episode just because I, you know, there are a lot of people out there who are very open to proclaiming, proclaiming themselves as allies to whatever causes are being fought for at the moment. Um, but at the same time, there isn't a handbook necessarily written out for how to be a good ally right so a lot of people are relying on maybe copycatting what they're seeing and in a way it it kind of leads them into showboating rather than actually (laughs) actually doing something effective I mean what are your thoughts on what you've seen so far yeah, I mean, I definitely, I mean, I I feel like I've definitely participated in false allyship before. I think that was like my first step into learning how to like be anti-racist and I'm still in the process of doing that. I think social media is a really toxic place for it. I think that's yeah. where I see it personally the most. <laughs> I mean, that's where I participated in the most. I, I was very much into, and I, and I think it comes from a good place place it's it's Mm. well-intentioned but I I think like one of the keys to to learning how to become a better ally or a true ally is is to really listen and just realize that the conversation is not about you Mm. Um, and I think a lot of people are uncomfortable with that particularly if they come from a place of privilege to where they've always kind of felt like they're the main character you know what I mean Yeah. Yeah. No, and I would agree with that. And, you know, we're not saying, well, at least I'm not saying that your allyship needs to manifest itself in very active and very um, explicit ways. It can be passive. Um, 
you know there are things that you can do that are more so behind the behind the scenes things that um don't necessarily need to be posted on social media i think people have been almost misled in some way to have to put it out there on social media and i think that's when it, you can easily fall into the into that trap of maybe seeming a little bit disingenuine and yeah just you know showboat about it and not really engaging with the movement or whatever the particular um fight or protests or whatever's are about i mean one thing that i have noticed is as an ally because i would i would claim myself to be an ally for other communities and other groups and one thing that i've noticed from my experience is that when you're really doing it right it should tire you it should be hard and it should be difficult and it should make you uncomfortable at times also self-reflection as well as you know you putting out the message of, of what the cause is and i just think not everyone has fully grasped that necessarily right yeah i think i'm something that i'm trying to incorporate in my life in in many different ways is um the idea of making things a practice mm. so i'm trying to practice gratitude because it's not something that i i feel like i do enough and so i think practicing allyship in an active way and and like actively thinking what can i do and mm. and how will this like what will the consequences of my actions be and and doing it in, in kind of like a like a meditative or just like in a thoughtful way I don't know, because I feel like a lot of people enjoy sharing those articles on Facebook because it is cathartic mm. and they feel a sense of outrage and they want to express it and they want to make sure at the same time that people know that they're not racist because it's what a terrible thing to be. Mm. Um, no, I, I would agree. I think another thing sort of makes you more effective in your allyship is to hold conversations and speak with the people <laughs> that you are fighting for. There are some people who I am still friends with on Facebook, people who I've been friends with for many years and they've spoken out or they've made posts, etc. But I almost get the feeling that they've not really spoken to anybody. And in the case of uh, the Black Lives Matter movement, they've not really spoken to anybody who is black and who is maybe an active member in terms of the protests that are happening and uh, an active voice within the sort of social media platform. And I, I just feel like if they even spoke to a friend that's a lot closer to them and just asked them questions or at least had that discourse, I think they discover a lot more beneficial tactics. Yeah, I just get the sense that not a lot of people have done that. <laughs> yeah, and I think that ties back into listening and, and to like knowing that it's it's not about you. Mm. And so if if you're not willing to listen to the people that are directly being impacted, what are you even doing, <laughs> you know? <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's also interesting. Um, I believe that there are three cardinal laws to being an ally. Listening is one right? It's, it's about you, not I. Reading is another one. Y you must read material written by those whose voices you're fighting for and who are being impacted. Third, it is a lifetime commitment. <laughs> it is not yeah. something that is 
fluidly passing. It's not something that is momentary. It is is here to stay. It is a role that you should take on with as much commitment as you would take on any other sort of serious vow that you make, essentially. Because I do feel like once you assume that role of an ally, you are making a vow with yourself, you know, a silent vow with yourself that this is going to be the new me or this is working towards the new me this is now going to become part of my fabric as I continue to grow as a human being but what would you sort of list as other important aspects yeah I mean I love what you said for me I think listening is also my number one both as I I feel like I try to be an ally for the black community but also um, as a member of the Hispanic community Mm -hmm. um, something that I like to see in people who help my community. Mm. Um, I think recognizing your privilege and then using your privilege. So I think um, not only going, oh, I'm white and privileged, but um, (laughs) taking that voice and realizing what you can do with it and then actively saying something. So like if your racist uncle is over, he's going to listen to you more than he's going to listen to somebody from the community that he is racist against. And so using your voice. Um, I loved your point about reading though, because I think there's so many materials out there and there's so many resources out there that a quick Google search, it's just so easy. It is. I'm surprised because, you know, a lot of people have so much time on their hands now these days. There is the time that's there and I just feel people need to utilize it while it's still here. I wouldn't necessarily say that people aren't actively doing these things because I do think that it may be a key reason to why the the protests have gone on for as long as they have and why people have sort of stayed so active and and in it um, for as long as they have I do think people are doing what they can and on a more frequent basis because you know we don't have those normal distractions in life (laughs) I agree with that, but it's also, like, I see a lot of people that are, they find it unpleasant, Mm. and they're trying to, like, practice self-care, and, like, I totally get that, and I vibe with that, but Mm. you can't keep yourself comfortable in this, like, little Mm. bubble of privilege when people really need you to stand up. One thing that I will say is that when you do become an ally, I think a moment that you can recognize and and use as sort of like a benchmark the moment where you say something maybe the room either is silent because they either disagree disagree or they agree but there's no reason for them to have to like applaud you for it you know um yeah and I think that is the moment that you realize okay well um for a lot of us I do think you know a lot of the times we're brought up in a way to expect some sort of show of congratulations or show of gratitude for doing the most minuscule things (laughs) and the biggest example of that are participation awards that you get in school you know especially with our generation I do think oh yeah get a lot of people who still expect to be applauded for just speaking out about something or just for posting something really quickly on social media Um, but it is a really thankless endeavor and (laughs) when you realize that I think that's when it really starts to click. I I mean I agree with that but I also think that it because it it can be very uncomfortable and I think in Mm. a sense it should be very uncomfortable or else you 
perhaps aren't focusing your energy in the right direction. But I think it can also give you so many benefits because like there's a lot of beautiful art that I found in the Black community that I just wouldn't have found before had I not Mm. opened my mind to it. There's so much positive things that the Black community contributes to the world that a lot of people just miss. And I think when you start to honor that and celebrate that and fight to give people those voices, it it makes the world and, I mean, my country, the the United States, a a better place. Yeah. And, you know, it's the same with any other sort of group that is marginalized. You know, I've learned so much through my journey of being an ally for the LGBTQ plus community, as well as for other minority groups, racial groups as well there are a lot of benefits that come from it. The enrichment that you get from committing yourself with that, I think it's it's such a beautiful thing. And like you said, it's not all just <laughs> trudging like through grunt. the mud and, and grinding your way through. No, it, you get some good moments and it's, it's fantastic and I love it. Do you have any moments where you've witnessed something that, or an ally behaving in a certain way that just wasn't, necessary optimal and I'm talking about you know from your experience as well as as a Latina do you ever experience moments or do you have moments where it just makes you stop and think yeah I would say I see it more actually in the black community rather Mm -hmm. than in the Hispanic community I think uh, something that I see that's really damaging is when people show footage of people being brutalized or Mm -hmm. or murdered and when people show pictures of that and then they share them with no content warning or trigger warning. Mm. I think that well-intentioned but short-sighted, I think that could be really traumatizing to a lot of people. I mean, for me, it's really microaggressions for me. I, I'm white in my skin color and mm. I I don't have an accent my parents do, so I, I more see it uh, happening to them. Yeah, I mean, it's just a lot of uh, people talk down to them mm. thinking that they're helping them, but it's like, you're just thinking that they're not smart because of their accent. They're remarkably educated people. And it's, it's just a lot of microaggressions they build. And I mean, what's your experience been like in Texas as well? I'm not sure about what's going on with the wall. Yeah. I, I think they've built like a tiny little piece of it. <laughs> it's a disaster. I mean, living in Texas is, is wild because it, uh, it's very diverse here. Mm. And so you have a, a huge Hispanic population and it's very lively and it's very beautiful. You also have a lot of conservatives and a lot of people that are very set within their ways. And Texas is a very libertarian ideologically place. They don't like the government kind of messing with them. And so when it comes to passing things for social change, they tend to be resistant. I don't know. They're very racist here. Mm. It's, it's t- tricky down yeah. here. But I think it just also depends on your city. So I live in Dallas, which tends to be very progressive. Uh, but I did live in a rural place and living in a, in a rural place and like even my name when I would like get my driver's license. It, I don't know. They say it with a tone that's kind of like, oh, this girl's Hispanic. Like, yeah. I don't feel good here. Mm. If that makes sense. <laughs> I guess it's just the feeling of never really truly being comfortable. Like you take a walk in your neighborhood and there's all these Trump pen signs and you're mm. like, like these people are supporting locking children up and mm. um, not doing anything against police brutality. And <laughs> these men are, have supported and have been pretty openly racist. <laughs> mm. One thing that I can relate with is that sense of that foreboding. I think that is something that marginalized groups go through pretty much on a daily basis. I think it's quite 
a norm which is really sad to say yeah. you don't want to ever walk through life feeling like yeah like always sort of carrying this cloud behind you you know but um i do think it is something that does unfortunately happen quite a lot and for a lot of people it is a daily experience in regards to your family what have their reactions been like, especially towards the Black Lives Matter movement? It's been very interesting, actually, because we're immigrants, right? Mm-hmm. So American racism is such a like specific breed of racism. I, I was like, you guys, please watch 13th. It's free. Like, please, like, educate yourself on what's going on. They're like, oh, like Alexandra, like, in Venezuela, it's very different. <laughs> like, everyone kind of mixed down there. And so it's like a different, it's not the same and I was like sure but like we live in the United States you guys should try to educate yourselves and and they're pleasantly progressive mm. compared to um a lot of my extended family okay you know they have a they have a ways to go so we have my sister and I have really tried to engage in dialogues with them a lot in a way that's that's an inviting because I think it's really easy for us to get really like angry about it but I don't think that's <laughs> helpful for anyone yeah. And it kind of feels like false outrage because it's like I don't experience police brutality or like that kind of thing firsthand. I mean, I am very outraged for for my friends and for my peers and for people I don't know that that happens to. I think that's horrible, horrible, but... I don't think yelling at my mom is going to solve the problem. We've tried to talk to them in a way that makes them not feel defensive, but a way that's inviting because mm. we would like them to also be allies. I I mean, they are racist in certain aspects and like they're not, they're not like Blue Lives Matter. They're, they're not those people, but mm. like if they play rap music, they they don't understand it. They, they don't like it and they're not open to it and they don't mm. understand it as being like a, a different culture from them. So it's, it's kind of about challenging their inherent biases and their comforts because they're very kind of set in their comfortable ways. Right. I think that plays on an earlier episode where we talk about the differences between racism, prejudice and discrimination. I do find that in a lot of cases within cultures that aren't white, let's say, so for example, Hispanic culture, African culture, all sorts, Asian culture. I think you do have these inherent biases, like what you've just said. You know, you've, you've got these inherent prejudices towards other minority groups as well. As I've been, you know, doing a lot of research around the topic, I do always find myself coming back to the root of it and that root being white supremacy and that root being ultimately um, colonialism. I think that event in history really reshaped a lot of nations and a lot of people's way of thinking about other people. A lot of wrong things were taught and we're not just talking about the British empire, we're talking about the Portuguese, oh, we're talking the about Spanish. Every, the Spanish, every, we're talking about everybody. And I think that time in history really set a precedent for what, in a way, the global mind thought is what's right about certain groups of people and what's wrong about them. Like you said, and it's, and it's a thing that you can't expect people to necessarily change overnight. It's something that needs to be untaught. You know, Absolutely. that's a really interesting 
thing that a lot of people have been saying recently is I'm teaching a lot of the things that we've been taught growing up. And I think that's such an important step. I applaud you and your sister because you guys are helping to do that for your immediate family. And that is ideally what everyone should be trying to do. And it's, I think it's uncomfortable to question what you know well, you know, like what you don't know. So I think for my parents, they are are very well educated, but they were raised in this sort of little bubble. We, I mean, my ancestors were colonizers and they, they were Spanish colonizers and they went to South America and we, we never mixed. We, my genealogy is, is 100% European and my family was there for 200 years yeah. in, in South America. So they were raised in this really like niche little, little white Spanish bubble in South America. Like my grandfather was a, was a really wonderful person and I think he, he did a lot for his community and he he was really involved in philanthropy and that stuff, but he was very much a racist. And I think mm. um, getting to the place where you can be vulnerable and accepting that people aren't necessarily like good or evil, like everyone's a little more nuanced and you can mm. acknowledge the good with the bad and be like, well, my, my grandfather was a wonderful individual um, yeah. in certain aspects, but he was also a racist and that's mm. not okay. And so I think it's, it's uncomfortable to have that conversation um, and to have the, those thoughts, but I think it's also really important. And I think I want to celebrate my parents for for being vulnerable and to to kind of take it from me and my sister because it's a little bit of a yeah. role reversal because they're used to teaching us. Yeah, um, I think one thing that I do tend to witness a lot, especially within the Hispanic community, is that idea of colorism, right? Because oh yeah, I mean it's something that we talk about all the time within the black community and it's very directly offshoot from racism but also from the slave trade and from colonization everything so I'm not surprised that it's also prevalent within the Spanish community but it's interesting because I think the response is very different there (laughs) yes it is it's less insidious I would say than than in the United States but I think it's also so a, a little more casual, a little more acceptable to be racist yeah. in South America. It's just very different. And it's yeah. been it's been interesting kind of seeing racists in Texas that were that were born and raised here, like with the whole American culture of how that is, and then seeing racists in, in Venezuela, which is mm. um, the country where I was born, and to see how different that is. I actually I experience more like acknowledgement of colorism from people who are not Hispanic about my my color in Hispanic and and being Hispanic they're like wow you are so pale like you don't look Hispanic at all I was like Hispanic people look all different all shades yeah <laughs> all shades yeah I'm I'm curious because I've only experienced the like my view of racism and 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 that is just from the point of view of the Americas how how is it in Europe me and my cousin actually talk about this in another episode as well in Europe racism in general is a lot more subtle than over in the states I think a lot of that stems from sort of them nipping overtly racist laws in the bud a lot earlier on in history if we're being completely honest we never really had a massive sort of issue around for example minorities getting the right to vote those sort of things it's just that 
at that time, for example, when the suffragette movement was happening at that time, you know, there were minorities within the UK, for example, but that there weren't a lot of them. And so it wasn't that prevalent of a community that I don't think they even need to, needed to have thought about trying to exclude them necessarily. But I think in today's sort of time over here in Europe, you do still get overt examples of racism happening still. For example, if I've traveled to Paris and I've traveled to Italy and I've traveled to a few other places within the European continent, each time I've always been really observant to what the general response would be to when, once they see me and my family um, sort of walking down the street, for example. A lot of the time, I have to admit, is a pleasant experience but at the same time I do take note of how differently they'll treat us to how differently for example in Paris that they treat African immigrants. It made me feel really uncomfortable just witnessing them get treated in such a almost like they're lower class citizens. I almost don't think that the French people even notice that it's something that they do where they differentiate because even within the black community they'll sort of categorize you within well you are the good type and you are (laughs) the bad type. France has a history of loving Mm. black Americans. The moment that they realize that you're American I think they've got this or at least black American I think they've got this sort of idealized glamorized idea of who you are you know if I was to go up to them and not identify or if I was to go up to them and not be speaking in a British accent or speaking in a way that they thought was proper and and maybe introduce myself as being Zimbabwean or as being just African in general and having that deep accent I think the reaction that I would have gotten in comparison to the reaction that I did get would have been very different It's an interesting place to observe racism, I think. But, you know, when it comes to law enforcement, in the UK especially, our law enforcement is no different in terms of profiling. You know, they'll still stop the group of black boys and they'll still put you in handcuffs first or put them in handcuffs first before establishing why they're there, who they are, what they're doing, you know, treat you as guilty first before you're innocent. It's a, it's a crazy world that we live in. And this is why it's so important to have those allies. This is why it's been so effective, especially with the types of ways that some allies have been sort of uh, actively participating. So for example, I love this whole sort of encouragement for people to, you know, when you see somebody getting stopped or questioned by the police, that you yourself take the time to stop and just make sure that what's happening everyone's okay maybe pull out your phone and start recording you know don't get in the officer's way obviously like don't get in the way of what they're doing but at the same time making it known that your presence is there and that you're there to ensure the well-being of whoever they're interrogating I think that's such a powerful thing that's come out of all of this. Yeah, I think a lot of people are learning that that's just a really good tool to use your privilege and it's an easy thing to do. 
it's where we became aware of the problem, I think in my generation, because mm. when, when smartphones came out and like we were able to take video, we started witnessing police brutality in a, in a real like tangible, like, hey, <laughs> this is a, an unedited video. <laughs> like this is yeah. a primary document of what's happening. And mm. so I think it's it's like a response to that. And I hope that people continue to do that. I hope that one day it's not necessary. But. Right. It's crazy because I've seen videos where um, the sergeant will tell his officers to switch off their body cam. Mm. It just doesn't make sense to me, like why that's even something that they can get away with doing. We don't make the laws. And I think that's another thing that people need to be asking for a revision on what are the consequences when you purposefully turn off your body cam or your dash cam or obstruct the view the view of it i think a great tangible way that's that's easy and and accessible is to vote more black representatives into Mm. positions of power in the united states like congress senate in your state senate and your state congress just because those laws are made by primarily white men who don't have to experience that on their day-to-day and it's not even on their radar and so they don't see it as a problem and they see it as an overreaction i I don't know it seems that way to me i mean i would agree with you the way that you've put it i think it kind of gives them a bit of slack it's not something that would even come to mind for them i think even saying that way is like being a lot softer because for me i i think that they do know because I think people have been very vocal about it. I do believe that these governors and these senators, active participants in social media, and that they must have come across one of the many posts or something. Like, I don't think they're sheltered from hearing what people have been saying about all of this stuff. And so I do think to some degree, it's a choice for them in terms of where the money's coming from, they've got no choice but to ignore it or to come up with excuses. Yeah, and I mean, it's, it's their job to represent their community. But if you read a lot of like the Federalist Papers, there's a lot of warnings about like what can happen with partisanship and what can happen with power-hungry politicians. And I think this is a great manifestation of that, of people choosing to ignore the right thing to do for their community in order to stay in power or to to keep getting money and stuff like that. So I think it's it's important for allies to, to be aware of that though and to hold their representatives accountable and to demand either change or to enact change by voting them out of office um, and to make it a real priority to be an ally at the ballot box and to stay really educated in who are the people who are preventing these police officers from being held accountable or who are the people who are stopping these legislations getting through. Yeah, I would definitely say that the biggest sort of downfall when it comes to elections in America is how, I don't know, set in their ways people are about being loyal to their party, right? So, um, and I think to some extent it is detrimental. Here's the thing. Nobody is fully innocent and nobody is fully guilty. You can't just label all Republicans as being racist. You can't label all Republicans as working against the general people's well, well-being, right? Sure. And at the same time, you can't claim all Democrats 
as non-racist and you can't claim them as focused and working for the people at all times. Everybody has somebody who's feeding into their pockets. And at the end of the day, a lot of, a lot of these people's motivations are the money. And so I think you do need to do your research, really dig into who, who is doing what that benefits the community in the way that you want to see your community benefited, right? Um, and who, who's, who's voting for the types of policies that you want to have enacted within your um, state or your community. I just think when you get to a point where you're so liberal that all you do is vote for democratic, the Democratic Party, or to the point where you're so conservative that all you do is vote for the Republican Party, that is when you fall into the trap. You're no longer voting in people for the right reasons. You're just voting in people to ensure that your party is either in office or that your party takes the seat. I think it's easy. I think um, it's it's easier to be loyal to your party. So it's easier for me to be like, wake up and I'm like, oh, I'm a Democrat. Like my family um, is full of Democrats. So I'm just going to vote straight blue because I don't have to research and I don't have to do the work. I have no idea who any of these people are. Like mm. I, they're just a list of names for me. So if I just yeah. go straight blue, I know that they, they most likely are ideal logically going to align with me. So it kind of creates this like simple thing. But I think that um, we do a particularly bad job of engaging people in politics in the United States mm. because we're really obsessed with partisanship and we're really obsessed with like the president. We've shown the president holds a lot of power because Trump yeah. has done quite a bit of damage. <laughs> but I think if we had a better system of education or if, if we had more mobility with maybe taking the party out and really going through your list of your local candidates and being like, this is what they stand for. Mm. Um, asking them really critical questions and then having like an easy resource for people to look at, whether it be like an app or something. I don't know. Mm. <laughs> this is like my dream for yeah. <laughs> engaging the youth in politics. I'm, I love politics. I'm somebody mm. who really, it's been a difficult time for somebody who loves politics. In yeah. the US. I mean, we both went to the same university for, mm. for a bit. And we were both in, in the theater department and yeah. there were so many people that aligned with like a liberal point of view, but they had no idea who their representatives were. They didn't know who the people were. They, they weren't voting. They weren't mm. doing any sort of action mm. or engaging in, within their community at all. I mean, I would take time and like my roommates, I was like, hey, sit down. We're going to talk about politics for a minute because you have no <laughs> idea who the, like who the speaker of the house is. And that's just, I can't, I can't deal with that. I can't let you go on the rest of your life not knowing yeah, any of this. Out of respect for you, I have to do that. Yeah. But it's like, how are you going to stand up and be so fervent about your your beliefs and and not actually do the only one of the only powers that you have yeah and, and that I think ties into that like active allyship mm. and that and that reading and that listening of like you have to look around and see what what areas of power do you have mm. in your community and how do you wield that power to help people the best yeah. and it's different for everyone it is you know moving forward if somebody is 
you know, doing their best to sort of work towards being a better ally or a truer ally. I do think the key thing to take away here is doing your research and not just relying on the fact that you're a liberal or the fact that you've got liberal views or the fact that you've got friends who are minorities. I think you need to do more than that. You need to go ahead and open up a book. You need to read a few articles. You need to participate actively in the research aspect of things because that's how you're going to become more informed. That's how you're going to end up guiding your actions later on, you know, because the moment you're aware of well for example because we're talking about voting these are the types of candidates that are in my area i am going to do as much work as i can to just understand where each one stands on certain policies that are important to me and important to my community and not just to me or not things that just benefit me but things that benefit those around me within my community and areas that are not getting enough attention or areas that are lacking so that when the time comes I can actively do something to number one cast that vote Number two, help educate my fellow peers, the younger generation as well. Number three, maybe start educating your, those within your family and within your own local circles. As we all know, not every family is made up of the same political um, views. <laughs> my mom voted Brexit and I voted <laughs> stay, but that's a sore subject, so we won't talk about that anymore. <laughs> Uh, you know, and, and you have to accept that, yes, number one. But also, you know, it's not to say that your dad, who is diehard Republican and has been a Republican his whole life, won't vote for a Democratic um, candidate. Maybe that Democratic candidate is working for policies that are more aligned with what he wants in general. And actually, the fact that that person is dem- in the Democratic Party actually mm-hmm. shouldn't have any effect on whether or not he feels okay with casting that vote. You know what yeah. I think would be a really good a- exercise is having these candidates present profiles of themselves and what their policies are and what their views are and what their goals are but stripping away what their party titles are seeing where where those votes end up falling in the end because I think you'll get a lot more mixes within different states and different local government areas you find even in in places like Texas Texas is turning purple but you're finding that a lot of people ideologically like they they always thought well my family is Republican so I sure I am and they find Mm. it as as a a part of their identity I don't know I just think the two-party system is so toxic (laughs) and the founders thought it was toxic like they warned us against it and here it is manifesting in all of its toxicity a lot of people also just forget the united states of america is such a new country as a nation it's really not lived through a lot of history it may feel like it has because of the type of history that is (laughs) it has lived so far but it's still so new and novice in the sense that these mistakes that are happening are kind of inevitable because the 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 sign the warning signs are all there i think one thing that 
I would like to see to come out of all of this is a reformation in some form of the United States, especially when it comes to government and comes to the political side of things, for people to still be fixated on things that were decided however many hundred years ago. You're seeing like a really big generational divide with the United States right now. It feels like there's two Americas right now. And you have this very like millennial Gen Z anti-capitalist. They're the ones that are really active in these protests and they're really pushing. And not to say that the older generation isn't, but um, they seem to be the ones that are saying like, this is absolutely not acceptable anymore. And it feels very sort of revolutionary, um, more than it's ever felt in my lifetime. Hamilton coming out around this time is really poignant because it has that same kind of revolutionary energy. So I wouldn't be surprised if if this new generation Gen Z, I love them. I'm a millennial and so <laughs> um, I see them and I was like, I want to protect the world for you because you guys yes. are so cool and <laughs> you guys don't care and they're very vocal. But they are naive in a sense. And so I don't know. It's like protect them but educate them but keep yeah. that fire of, mm. of change. And that energy that's just behind yeah. it all. Yeah. Absolutely. Because I feel like the millennials are ideologically very similar to them, but they don't have the energy. We're, we're just a lot more tired. <laughs> yeah, I think we're all like pretty mentally ill. Like, we... just, like we're just mentally exhausted. But it's great to have that younger generation who has that energy and that fire still behind them. They make me very um, hopeful. Yeah, their energy can so easily just sort of flail all over the place. Well, it's performative in a sense sometimes. I think yeah. it's it, a lot of them, it's it's fake it till you make it allyship because it's very, um, it's like cool to be an mm. ally right now, which is nice. But I think a lot of them, they're doing a lot of the, the performance of it which is good to spread the message by being like, hey, I'm so glad you have this energy and you're interested in this. Let's find a way to funnel that into tangible actions, into into things that you can you can do that will actually make a make a difference, not just um, spread the message. No, I agree. One thing that I would also say is similarly happening over here is the idea of not necessarily being anti-capitalist. But just this idea that we don't necessarily need to stick within these societal structures or governmental structures that we've stuck with for as long as we have. Like, it's okay to introduce something new. It's okay to try and figure out a new way of having a society function. and Particularly with globalism. Yeah, yeah, especially because no country is untouched by globalism. No nation can really even claim itself to be truly nationalist and, and, and have it sort of manifest its way in, in terms of what it looks like physically. And you've got such a mix of nations within every nation across the earth now. I mean, even Asia and China, which was until very recently, you know, quite a closed off section, now has budding groups of communities from across the world growing there and what's important is for us to move with that growth 
when we reach moments like this where there is a sense of a revolution happening and there's this tension that's happening and there's just anticipation building and there's this energy from the people and you shouldn't be fighting it we should be doing what we can to help aid it and help shape into whatever it's trying to shape itself into you know one thing I would say about allyship at the end of the day yes it's cool for the moment but at the end of the day you're basically declaring that you want to accept everybody for who they are and that everybody has the same rights to the same to the same benefits and privileges that you do by saying that you're also having to maybe sacrifice some of your own privileges and maybe some of not your rights but just some of the things that you've very comfortably been entitled to for a very long time and i just think people need to be okay with giving that some of that stuff up you can't expect for a previously very segregated community and separated and sectionalized community to then become magically diverse and unified and in all of these lovely words unless you in that position of privilege and power are able to give up some of those comforts you know and and share that amongst those who are without I completely agree. I I mean, I in my life, I do a lot of theater and a lot of musical theater. And that community is historically in the United States been a pretty ahead of its time, I would say. But it's also been also very toxic towards, I would say, Black people and all people of color, definitely for Hispanic people. I mean, I definitely don't struggle with it as much just because I do pass or I am white. But I just think that it's really important to look at your community of like what you do in your life. So if you are you an athlete? Are you an artist? Are you what do you partake in? And then look at the world and the, the structure and look at it really critically mm. and and listen to the people that you're trying to help. So that's, that's like, you know, rule number one, listen. And yes. in my year, so I'm a musical theater major, there is one black person. And I believe that's maybe the only person of color in the whole year. So I look at that critically. I mean, I've taught voice for a few years and anytime people come into my studio, I can kind of see like culturally, like which ones are kind of tend to be better art. And I would say like Latin people, Indian people, black people tend to like love art a little more. It's a little more in their tradition, I would say. Mm. And that's a a generalization. But I was like, why in this art form are there very, very few Hispanic people? there's very few black people there's like no Indian people there's very few Asian people and I mean a lot of that is is cultural like my my mother definitely didn't encourage me to go into the arts yeah I also think it's not an inviting place to be it's not (laughs) and Um, I'm talking from firsthand it's not (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. There's not a lot of opportunities for education. So I think these programs are really competitive. I'm in the theater. And Mm. so I look at it and as what I think my responsibility as an ally is to look at that environment really critically and say, what can I do that is attainable and have like really realistic goals so like can I offer like opportunities what can I do in that sense and Mm -hmm. then if you're an artistic director how do you create opportunities how do you do that and and having people on your staff and on your creative teams that Mm -hmm. are diverse not just 
choosing a show and then not having anyone on your creative team Mm. (laughs) contribute to it that has firsthand experience you know like look at the things and the traditions that we're so used to seeing and and I think that's what you were saying about reading that it's so important because I actually read a Facebook post of um, a black actor and I don't remember his name but he had played seaweed like a dozen times and he was like this is my post about why I don't like hairspray and he goes (laughs) like at the end like this the white girl saved television and um, racism was over. It's crazy. I honestly think from that perspective as well, talking about theatre, you know, there was a year when I was still attending university at Milligan, there was a play. What I did always question about them putting on that play. I mean, it was a play that was written by, I believe it was written by a black person. You know, the main character was black. It was a story about... Intimate apparel? Yeah, I think it was that. To me, it's not important of who directed it just because it's not like there was a choice for a black director to have even been brought in for that. So, (laughs) because there are zero black faculty members within the theatre department at that time. They've hired one. (laughs) Okay. Well, at that time, there was zero. I would have liked to have seen at least the opportunity for somebody to have been given a role of assistant director who was black. Just picking somebody who wasn't necessarily cast in that play, as much good intention that um, the director did have um, behind it, I do think having that second voice from a black person, I think would have made a big difference. Just the just the soul within the actual play itself. Yes, we can put on all these black plays and musicals, but if they're being put on by a sea of white, <laughs> then it just doesn't, yeah. almost, it almost defeats the purpose. It almost uh, feels performative. You've got the black people performing and then you've got yeah. the white people working behind the scenes. So it just doesn't feel, it doesn't sit right with me. We're choosing this season mm. for the like five black people in this program. There's not even a lot of black people in your program. <laughs> you didn't even like go out of your way to get people, but all your shows are chosen mm. to kind of like have representation and you're not even listening to the black people around you. <laughs> that doesn't surprise me. And honestly, I wish we could talk about it more. We, we could go on and on about all the many, many events that happened during our time. But you'll be graduating soon. Yes, um, I'm very excited. And you said that you're teaching at the moment. My Instagram has all my voice teacher stuff on it. So my Instagram is Orange Tree 4. I teach private voice lessons and I'm doing them through Zoom right now. And I'm very interested in expanding my studio for more um, Black and Hispanic kids and people that want to grow just because I every voice studio I was ever a part of was mostly white. Yeah. I was like, man, everyone, everyone needs vocal technique. <laughs> no, thank you so much for your time, Alex. It's been, honestly, it's been such a good conversation. And like I said, I do wish that we could continue because we were about to hit a stride that oh, yeah. <laughs> maybe some people aren't prepared for. No, I, I can't wait to have you back. Definitely, I do encourage people to check you out on Instagram. Keep me updated on how everything goes with the rest of your senior year and up to graduation, because that's going to be exciting. Um, I'm so excited. <laughs> Not being <laughs> be, in school anymore. Yeah, you'll finally be done. Don't worry, it's, it's all going to be worth it in the long run. But yeah, no, thank you so much for your input and for sharing your personal experiences as well. It's a big 
reason for why I wanted to start this. It's kind of therapeutic for us to just talk about an odd time that we remember from yeah. whenever, you know, just, just letting it out and saying it out and putting it out there. I just think it really does help people and it, it, it definitely will encourage other people as well. Yeah.